Welcome back, friends. It is the first week of 2022 and the first episode of Behind the Headlines, so why not get right into it? Today, we're talking about the political landscape of 2022, the redistricting in Michigan, and of course, the midterm election. Joining us today, of course, is Malachi Barrett and Lauren Gibbons, and let's get right into the episode. I'm pretty sure these two have been on Behind the Headlines more than most anybody, but joining us today, political reporters Malachi Barrett and Lauren Gibbons. And as always, a big Happy New Year to you, my friend, the one and only John Heiner. Thank you, Eric, for that introduction, and Happy New New Year to you as well. Uh, Brand new season of Behind the Headlines here, 2022. We can always start with uh with a lot of hope for how the year's gonna go a lot of positivity a lot of optimism uh there's a lot we don't know about 2022 um as we learn from 2021 uh you know events can uh they they shape their own course and and we kind of have to go along with it but one thing we know for sure uh, that's going to happen in michigan across the country is it's a big election year and uh, the forces have already been amassing around issues um, candidates. There's a, a fly in the ointment that has uh, recently come up with redistricting, which has created a little bit of chaos and some interesting um, outcomes there. So I thought a good topic to start the year this year would be to talk about the political landscape going into uh, gubernatorial election midterms and all that. From our statewide team, I want to welcome Malachi Barrett. Good morning, Malachi. Morning, John. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And Lauren Gibbons. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. Both of you have been on before, and I appreciate it. Um, One bit of unfinished business from 2021 um, that's going to actually have an effect all year long, Lauren, and it's what you've been covering so well, is the redistricting process that came out of the U.S. uh, Census. Um, They they created headlines of their own all along through the process, missed some deadlines, and and, uh, there was some controversy about the, the final maps. But why don't you tell our listeners where we stand with that, uh, and then we'll go into like some of the after effects uh, that it's causing politically. Yeah, so uh, actually with the new year, we have a trio of new political maps for Michigan uh, pending any legal challenges. There already are uh, legal challenges um, to these maps, but uh, we do have a new state house, state senate, and uh, congressional map. Um, some interesting points of these maps, uh, the, um, m- across the board, uh, they do have uh, incumbents drawn into the same districts that are causing some competitive primaries uh, to already pop up. Uh, we are seeing that they're a lot more competitive. Um, in previous decades, uh, the maps were drawn uh, by a Republican-led legislature, so typically they were more favorable to Republicans, especially the state Senate map is going to be interesting because that is a closer than it's been in decades for, a, you know, for a reasonably to expect Democrats to perform pretty well um, in the possibility of getting a majority. And uh, I think in the state house, you're seeing that it's still uh, leans Republican, although there's a lot more toss-up districts, so that could mean it could go either way in terms of who controls the legislature um, going into 2022. Now we're looking at a, it's it's a mid it's a midterm election um, at the presidential level, so um, typically the opposing party does does a little better in those elections. So Republicans are. 
uh, hoping for a pretty strong year um, at some of these down ballot races. So that could ultimately affect uh, where the legislative races go. Uh, but a lot of interesting stuff, um, a lot of interesting stuff coming out of this redistricting process. Um, and, and again, potentially it could change if the courts uh, tell the commission to, but we do have a set of maps to work with, um, which a lot of candidates were actively waiting for as they're a lot later than they typically are. Well, last week um, when they were finally finalized the maps, there was just this frenzy of, and I am live reporters across the state um, were very busy for a couple of days as all of the politicians jockeyed once they realized uh, what they were facing in their new districts. Um, what are some of the, you know, Lauren and Malachi, what are some of the races to watch? I know that um, around Detroit, uh, a couple of incumbent Democrats uh, who are in the you know, Congress are going to have to face off, but Peter Myers in a new district, I believe, over in Grand Rapids. So uh, what, are, what are some of the races you think we'll be watching in Michigan? Well, it's interesting. We have a couple of seats now that have moved into the toss-up category, at least according to the kind of political handicappers and, and analysts who track these races and, and make their kind of definitive calls on, you know, where things are leaning. But as it stands right now, we, we have three seats that are considered toss-up seats. We also have another seat that used to be occupied by a Democrat that is now wide open. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about who can get on that race. So that's potentially four pretty competitive congressional races. Uh, you mentioned a couple of them, Peter Meyer, uh, who represents area around Grand Rapids that used to stretch all the way, you know, in this narrow kind of vertical band south to Calhoun County and Battle Creek area. His new district stretches further west to the Michigan Lakeshore and a little bit north into Muskegon. Um, and with those voters added in, it's expected to be a little bit more competitive than normal. Um, he has a couple of primary challengers who are lining up against him as well. So yet to be seen if he'll take the party's nomination to move forward there, but Democrats have, might have a better chance of taking that seat. Um, on the other hand, uh, out on the east side of the state, uh, Kildee, uh, who represents an area that kind of encompasses Flint and a lot of Saginaw Bay City area, his seat has become more, uh, it's expanded to include more traditionally Republican voting areas. Um, and that's the part of the state that has leaned very Republican in, in past presidential elections. It's a lot of kind of working class people who uh, flipped over for Trump that used to be kind of union Democrats. So, uh, you know, he's kind of tough to beat. He's been there a long time. The Kildee family has been uh, a political dynasty in that area for a long time. But there's uh, some headwinds for Republicans maybe to, to take some ground there. Um, a little bit south of that in a district that uh, used to include uh, Oakland, Livingston and um, uh, Ingham counties now has moved further west and north into central Michigan, and that's uh, Alyssa Flocken's seat. Uh, she notably flipped that seat in 2018, used to be a Republican stronghold. Uh, she's a Democrat and, and won that seat and then hung on to it in the last election, but uh, it, it might be a little bit tougher for her now as the district extends further into central Michigan, which is you know, generally more conservative voting. So uh, State Senator Tom Barrett uh, is vying to run against her. So far, those are the only two people who have uh, thrown their hats in the race. And I think Barrett is probably one of the more prominent Republicans, um, one of the more high-profile Michigan senators. So I think he'll have a lot of you know wind to his back as well. And then lastly, in the 10th district, um, this is a seat that geographically used to be represented by Andy Levin. Mm -hmm. um, he is now uh, 
he announced that he will try to challenge uh, Haley Stevens in what is now Michigan's 11th congressional district. So that sets up a really interesting primary race between two uh, Democrat incumbents. Uh, the 11th district will probably be represented by a, de a Democrat. It's, it's um, you know, the way it's drawn is probably a safe seat. But the 10th district, which has parts of Macomb County, it's just north of uh, kind of the edge of, of Wayne County, um, has been a, a, you know, more of a Republican voting area. So there's a lot of speculation about who could jump in the race. Democrats don't really have anybody yet who's going for it, but there's a lot of speculation that maybe John James you know, former two-time U.S. Senate candidate could get involved. Um, I think that's a lot of wishful thinking. You know, we'll, we'll see if he wants to, to run three cycles in a row. Um, but that's another seat to watch as well. So, yeah, these, these seats are really interesting the way that they've been mixed up. A lot of them are, are somewhat similar, but the changes that have been made uh, to some of the ones we just mentioned are going to make for a pretty interesting um, race this year. Yeah, what I thought, too, is if you want to know what you need to know about politics and politicians is the Dingle name is, is synonymous with Downriver Detroit, you know, you, you know Wyandotte, Trenton, Grosseal, Taylor. And like within seconds, she's like, I'm moving to, I'm moving to Ann Arbor. <laughs> you know, as soon as she saw the lines is uh, she's going to actually physically move um, to, to move into the, you know, the power base of her new district. So uh, it really just set off a flurry that, of activity, and I think it just set the stage for what's going to be, I think, a very uh, energetic political year here in Michigan. One other thing, Lauren, I want to go back before we, we stop talking about the redistricting. In some ways, from what I'm following and your coverage and other uh, uh, stories I'm reading, is it's, it's judged to be more fair, quote unquote, fair or neutral, less gerrymandering, you know, obviously politically gerrymandered. However, uh, there's some lawsuits pending uh, based on the Voting Rights Act that it's actually somehow hampering or minimizing um, minority majority districts. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And this has been one of the most controversial aspects of the redistricting process uh, throughout the mapping process. Uh, the way that the commission is interpreting the Voting Rights Act is to give minority communities, uh, districts where they can elect their preferred candidate. And they were um, steering away from making majority minority districts, basically using um, an expert analysis that found, well, maybe we don't need to have majority minority districts to give minority communities the preferred candidate that they want. Now, that's been pretty controversial in the Detroit area, especially with the way that the districts have been drawn. A lot of the districts are pulling outside communities into districts with the city of Detroit. And so that means that parts of Detroit are getting pulled into suburban areas, sometimes crossing over into Oakland or Macomb counties, um, you know. And, and some of these Detroit area lawmakers and community members are saying, we're not the same as, you know, the Birmingham's, the Ferndale's, the, um, the outskirts of the city. We have unique needs as Detroit residents, as black residents, and uh, they would like to see districts that better reflect them. And the argument for the Voting Rights Act there is that there is, they are arguing that there is a distinct possibility that they're not going to be able to elect as many black 
lawmakers uh, to some of these state legislative and congressional seats because uh, they don't have an outright majority in many of these districts anymore. So, so it's going to be a really interesting legal argument. Uh, it's it's been clear, um, you know, for observers of this process for probably months at this point that this was going to be something uh, litigated. So it will be really interesting to see what the courts ultimately say if the courts determine that these districts that the commission drew are good enough to support minority community interests or if the commission is going to be ordered to go back to the drawing board here. Yeah, do you, what's the likelihood of that, Lauren? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I'm, no, I'm no Voting Rights Act uh, attorney by any means, um, but uh, it, it could be interesting. It kind of depends on whether this is ultimately a federal or state court decision. Um, the current lawsuit that was filed this week by a number of Detroit current and former lawmakers uh, was filed in state court. And their rationale for that is that following federal guidelines for redistricting like the Voting Rights Act um, is, uh, is also included in the constitutional amendment. Um, so they need to follow federal guidelines to follow the state guidelines essentially. But because the Voting Rights Act is a federal law, um, it's possible that we could also see this kicked over into federal court as well. Oh boy, a, a ruling that to go back to the drawing board would really uh, add to the chaos of an election year. Absolutely. And that is something that a lot of people are watching, you know, with concern, I think, including the Department of State, uh, because typically the Department of State has uh, several months to put together these new districts and prepare them in time for the candidate filing deadline of April 19th. And this year, with these new maps, that's already a truncated timeline because the process was delayed significantly uh, by the delay of U.S. Census data. Um, so going back to the drawing board in any sense um, could really complicate matters for getting these new districts in time for 2022 elections. Right. So looking at <clears throat> the braces coming ahead, uh, Malachi, you talked about some of the, the state house, or excuse me, the uh, congressional races uh, uh, for the House of Representatives. But the one at the, the marquee race is uh, obviously the governor's uh, race. And, um, you know, a year ago at this time, Governor Whitmer was in the headlines every single day, sort of a lightning rod. Um, that seems to have tempered down a lot as she's backed away from, you know, just engaging around COVID restrictions and so forth. Sounds like she's been busy out raising money. Um, you've written about that as well. But uh, well, can you frame the uh, the gubernatorial race and what we could you expect to be covering? I know there's a lot of jockeying. Obviously, she's the nominee for Democrats, but on the Republican side. So what are we going to see taking shape over the next several months as it relates to the, the governor's race? I think at this point, the, the general read is that, you know, Whitmer has a lot of vulnerabilities. And Republicans have a lot of advantages coming into a midterm year where historically the minority party fares better. Um, and in a situation where the president is very unpopular, that's going to reflect on Governor Whitmer, who was, you know, at one point kind of vying to be his vice president, uh, as well as Democrats down the ticket. Now, that's if they don't, if Republicans don't screw up these advantages, which is kind of an open question. Right now, we've got a crowded field of you know, Baker's dozen or so of Republicans who are vying for their party's nomination to challenge Whitmer, trying to make their case to 
uh, voters and, and people within the, the party that they're the best person who can take her on. Um, but it's been, you know, a, a bit of a slow going so far. I mean, we've got some interesting figures. James Craig kind of rolled out, you know, the former police chief of Detroit, uh, rolled out his campaign midsummer, um, saying that he used to be a Democrat. Now he's a Republican. He's going to be, um, you know, he, he kind of walked out as the, the uh, prospective front runner of the race. But I think over time, you know, he's been a little bit quiet. He's a little bit um, light on kind of policy ideas and a kind of real platform um, that tells voters what his campaign is all about. He's been um, showing up on Fox News a lot, but not holding a lot of events around the state. And so, I, you know, I think there's a little bit of hesitation to, to still kind of crown him as the front runner. That's still a little bit uh, of an open question, especially when you've gotten uh, some new folks like Kevin Rinke, uh, who's come to play with $10 million of his own money. Uh, he's, uh, you know, could be well known in Southeast Michigan uh, through his auto dealerships. You see his name on, on billboards, so he might have a bit of a built-in advantage there. And he's taking out more of a moderate kind of path among the party. Um, then you've got uh, Garrett Saldano and, and Tudor Dixon, who are really plugged into is a grassroots base of the Republican Party. Um, you know, what you could maybe consider the Trump wing of the party. Um, Garrett Saldano has been you know, on people's Facebook feeds since the beginning of the pandemic, he helped organize Stand Up Michigan, one of the groups that really pushed back against uh, Governor Whitmer's orders and lots of ballot petitions and so on. So he's got like a big group of people who already know who he is and are used to tuning into like his daily live streams, super active on Facebook, really active on social media, and all these different platforms and like really engage with people. Tudor Dixon, a lot of the same, you know, applies there. She's a, a former kind of conservative talk radio, conservative media host uh, who you know, has, has a real profile in that wing of the party. So if they can translate that into more ma mainstream appeal, they could possibly, you know, be in the running as well. Then there's a handful of other candidates who, you know, probably weren't, aren't really worth focusing on at this stage. I, I kind of see that as like the top of the field. Um, but Whitmer, I mean, I, I said she's got some vulnerabilities. A lot of people are kind of upset still with the way that she's handled COVID and maybe you know, flip-flopped on how she's decided to, to issue restrictions now that Omicron is surging again, and we had, you know, a surging cases of Delta. Uh, but I still think she's going to be tough to beat. I mean, as you noted, she's got a lot of money coming in. She was able to raise um, several million dollars off recall efforts. She's going to have to give that money back and, and won't be able to use it for her own campaign. Um, but I think she's got a huge national profile that is going to make it easy for her to raise money. Um, she's going to have national figures coming in to help boost her campaign. I wouldn't be surprised if the president came and campaigned for her a couple of times. Um, you know, generally, I think the biggest problem for her is that she hasn't been able to focus on her policy, policy agenda because we've had just like series of cascading catastrophes here in Michigan between the COVID pandemic, between, you know, the massive flooding in Midland, between the water crisis in Benton Harbor. Um, you know, she hasn't really been able to focus on fixing the damn roads. And she's got some federal funding coming in to help with that. But a lot of the local roads haven't really been fixed. So I, I don't think, you know, the average person feels like that's been accomplished. They did pass a pretty big economic uh, incentive reform at the end of uh, 2021, aimed at bringing big businesses in after we lost uh, Ford. Ford was going to build this big new electric vehicle plant, electric battery plant. Michigan really wants those jobs and we just lost out. So legislature uh, partnered with her to put something together there. The only other major policy item that she's 
probably able to hang her hat on is the auto insurance reform, which is, you know, a big deal. It's a bipartisan accomplishment, but it has a lot of issues. Uh, lawmakers are, are tweaking it and going back to the drawing board on that one as well. So, um, you know, people did save some money with that, but it's, it's a bit of a mixed message if she's going to make the case to voters on that one. So, you know, overall, I think it's a, it's a good year for Republicans if they don't screw it up. And Whitmer's definitely not anything to, uh, you know, take advantage, uh, you know, assume that you're going to be able to put something together on her. She's, um, you know, don't take that one for granted. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MLive podcast. We're kicking off 2022 by talking about politics and elections in Michigan this coming year. Our guests are Malachi Barrett and Lauren Gibbons, political writers on MLive's statewide team. And uh, to go back to some of the things you're talking about related to policy in the elections, um, Lauren, what's where do we stand in the legislature right now? What are some of the, I mean, that kind of gets lost when we talk about politics a lot, I mean, elections a lot, is what's this happening in the day-to-day in Michigan? What are legislative priorities going into the year? Uh, aside from, you know, any political wrangling and, you know, COVID, you know, COVID still, it, it casts a pall over everything that's happening in the state, including politics. So uh, what, you know, the legislature still, um, you know, run by Republicans, what's their policy agenda for the year? Yeah, I think it's important to note that typically in an election year, we've got a, we've got a bipartisan, or at least we have a Democratic governor, a Republican led legislature, in an election year, it might be a little bit more complicated to pass meaningful election or to pass meaningful reforms um, that both parties can agree on, unless it looks good for both of them in campaign literature. But um, I think, as Malachi alluded to, I think economic development is going to be a major priority moving into 2022. That was kind of a late 2021 uh, venture uh, that was kind of inspired by the Ford issue. Um, and, and now they're trying to really position themselves. I think uh, workforce development is going to be a key factor as COVID has so um, it has, has made so clear to everyone, uh, the workforce uh, changes uh, has caused a lot of shortages in many industries and especially um, in that healthcare industry where we so desperately need workers. So I think uh, recruiting, attracting, retaining people to keep them in Michigan is going to continue to be a priority. And while I wouldn't necessarily say it's at the top of the docket uh, for Republican leadership, uh, the auto insurance issue is not going away. Um, there are a lot of people who think that uh, there are still changes that need to be made to the auto insurance law that passed in 2019. We saw um, late last year uh, that Michigan drivers are going to get a $400 per vehicle refund on their auto insurance uh, due to surpluses in the catastrophic claims fund, um, which you know no one's going to turn down $400, but uh, critics of the way that the legislature and the administration handled the auto insurance issue are saying we need to make sure that there's adequate um, that there's adequate policies in place to make sure uh, that the catastrophically injured um, who are receiving uh, day-to-day care are still getting the best care 
and have access to that care without a lot of uh, administrative hurdles. Um, so, so I think that those are some of the issues that I'll be watching. Um, another another long-standing issue that Republicans have really been trying to push or trying to reform elections um, that has been shot down uh, time and again by the Whitmer administration. It's unlikely that there's going to be much bipartisan agreement on election reform, considering the ongoing uh, disagreement in some cases um, over whether the 2020 election was valid. There are still Republicans out there who believe that it wasn't. Um, so, so it's unlikely, even though there are uh, proposed changes that uh, both sides agree would probably make the elections run easier. I think uh, changing the processing times for when clerks can start ballots, because we have a lot more absentee ballots coming in uh, with the no reason absentee changes that were passed in 2018. I think a lot of Republicans, Democrats can agree that, you know, clerk could use more time. Will changes like that happen in an election year with um, with some of these disagreements about how elections are handled? I am not sure. Right. And there was some discussion of ballot initiatives on, on new ID requirements, um, forensic audits and things like that. But none of those got off the ground, right? Um. I, I don't think so. Um, I know that I know Republicans have have tried to uh, to push that and tried to get it on the ballot. Um, I guess we'll I guess we'll see uh, all of the ballot initiatives have until April uh, to file. Um, there's also another unlock Michigan initiative still kicking around. Um, so I, I think uh, I think at the end of the day we'll see what uh, what initiatives people are hoping to uh, basically the initiatives that get the funding needed to be successful get the backing um, and and ultimately get the valid signatures um, to to get through um, just for the layperson who may not follow these ballot initiatives closely uh, it's frequently a strategy of folks who are trying to uh, get things passed without approval from the governor necessarily uh, to collect the required number of signatures for a ballot initiative because then it, if it's a legislative change before it goes to the ballot, it goes to the legislature for approval, yeah. at which point the legislature can approve it uh, without the governor's signature. Um, it's it's kind of a quirk in Michigan law um, that's frequently used as something of a loophole. So I think that that's where that would end up um, if such an initiative were to be successful. But I guess, yeah, um, we, we've got a few more months to kind of see where all the initiatives shake out at this point. Right. And that one is in 2018, John, I just want to make a comparison to yeah. our last midterm election, right. you know, the impact of these ballot initiatives, which can sidestep the governor, um, you know, they're, they're veto proof. But in 2018, you know, we got recreational marijuana, we got changes to the redistricting process, which have resulted in the new maps that we have now. Um, you know, we got uh, expansion of no reason absentee voting, which was, I mean, huge. These are changes to the state mm -hmm. constitution, you know, that affected how everybody voted last time around and, and will far into the future. So, uh, 
yeah, I mean, these are, these are legitimate ways of like getting some serious, uh, you know, changes to our state and how we do things. And I think it'll be interesting to see in a year that, you know, there's expected to be more kind of headwinds behind Republicans. If some of these kind of more conservative ideas, um, you know, we're talking about limiting the, the duration of it, uh, emergencies under pandemics, you know, we're talking about voter ID. There is one to, to force another investigation of the 2020 results and create this like independent body that would look at it. Um, how successful those will be compared to, you know, last time around where these were kind of more Democrat, you know, more kind of progressive ideas that, that passed through the ballot. So it all comes down to turnout at the end of the day. You know, we're coming off a 2020 election where we saw historic numbers of people go out to vote. And I think the biggest question for me right now is like, how much does that translate into midterm years where generally more people stay at home? I think there was a hope that like voting in 2020 would create this new habit for people and they would be more likely to vote in these off-year elections. Um, but that's, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing, so. Well, I have yet to see an issue that, I mean, obviously COVID restrictions, but the heat's kind of backed off a little bit on that. Obviously, Michigan just had its worst month ever for COVID and, and people don't seem too up in arms. You know, there's not a lot of political fighting or nobody's rallying at the Capitol because there's no restrictions, basically. Um, so what is the hook issue this year that you see coming, either of you, down the road? What's something that could be a wedge or something that could get people incited? I think one thing that I didn't bring up earlier in that policy uh, conversation, but something that is on the minds of a lot of Michigan residents and will continue to be, as you said, uh, COVID has continued uh, to, to get pretty bad in Michigan right now, and that has really had an impact on schools. And if there's anything that activates voters, it is schools. And uh, we are seeing... Um, we are seeing a lot of schools, uh, you know, some are going back to partially virtual again um, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, the fact that this is still in flux uh, is going to, it, it's already uh, very difficult for parents, teachers, school staff, um, everyone involved in the education system is looking for some stability here. They're looking for some guidance. And they haven't really seen that uh, from the state. So we're seeing now um, that that schools are kind of taking the measures that they see fit. Um, and, you know, in some cases that is causing a lot of backlash. So right now we're seeing a lot of those conversations happen at the local levels. Uh, we're seeing um, we're seeing the schools, the school districts kind of make those decisions for themselves uh, as as they are seeing outbreaks. Um, but I think there have been, and there will continue to be calls uh, to see some guidance and some leadership from, um, from both the administration and the legislature um, on how to continue dealing with this problem. Because unfortunately, it doesn't seem like COVID is going away anytime soon. And that is really having a major impact on our school systems. Yeah, we're getting to the end of time here. And I, I just always like to turn it around and talk a little bit about the journalists and the journalism. Um, your, your colleagues in MLive who cover Michigan football just had kind of a great experience to go to college football playoff. Doesn't happen every year, but uh, the election season is your college football playoff for, for a political writer. So, you know, just talk a little bit about what each of you personally is hoping to uh, 
to do this year, cover this year? Uh, what's some of your some of the things that you're going to be looking at personally? Uh, well, not personally, but professionally uh, for the sake of our readers. Well, I mean, the first first thing there is they don't feed us the way those those college sports writers <laughs> get fed, man. They I see those uh, the spread on social media and that, that stuff looks pretty good. So. Uh, we're not treated quite as well at some of these uh, events, even though they do feel like sporting events sometimes. But no, I'm just I'm excited because we had a very strange election cycle in 2020, just in the way that people had to kind of organize while COVID was happening. And, you know, all of the candidates, all the party insiders, all the volunteers had to, you know, sidestep this this big elephant in the room, which is, you know, if you're getting out and around people, it, it would put your health at risk. So that's still going to be a factor this time. But I think we'll see more of a kind of conventional election cycle. And I'm just really interested to hear what people think and, and care about, you know, what, what's important to them this year. Um, we spent so much time, you know, talking about COVID. I, I think economy and education uh, are, are the two things that, you know, everybody's really worried about, brings stability to both of those situations. So I'm just uh, very curious to get around the state and talk to people. And uh, if you guys, anybody sees me out there, feel free to come up and say hello and tell me what, uh, you want us to be focusing on because this is a, a very influential election, not just the governor's race, but up and down the ticket. So, yeah. Lauren? Yeah, I think for me, um, as I think a lot of our readers know, I've been focused quite a bit on redistricting over the last several months. So, I'm really interested to see that play out in real time, see how that impacts our elections. Um, I think, uh, you know, covering. And, and covering the possibility of all of these competitive races across the state, uh, those those races get really interesting. Um, and and I think uh, I think that's interesting for so many of our readers across the state uh, to potentially be seeing competitive races where they may not have seen competitive races, at least in the general election in a long time. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And I am excited, uh, as Malachi said, um, you know, we, uh, we covered campaign events in 2020. They started happening again, especially towards November. But uh, you know, covering elections from home is really sad. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, I, I know that we kind of, uh, you know, usually we have like an election spread um, you know, we have kind of the office camaraderie or we're going to all these mm -hmm. glitzy campaign events and we're seeing all these really interesting things and talking to people. And so, yeah, covering uh, the election, you know, ordering a ordering delivery pizza to my house is pretty sad. So I'm really hoping uh, <laughs> that that we're getting to the point where, you know, we can kind of see these elections as more of a communal experience again. Um, and now it, it has changed a lot, uh, especially with how people vote in 2018. Um, and then into 2020, we saw, I believe, the highest percentage of absentee voters that we ever have. Um, but, you know, it is kind of fun. And, and I cast my ballot absentee as well, just to kind of see how the process worked. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it'd be kind of fun to, you know, go back into that again, because ultimately voting is a communal process. Elections are something that while it has been so divisive since the 2020 election, like ultimately it is something that kind of is supposed to bring our democracy together and prove how it works. So I'm really hopeful, crossing my fingers in 2022, uh, that things go a little better, that 
people have a little bit more faith in the process and that, you know, uh, that it's it, it's going to be interesting, but I I just hope that uh, you know democracy continues to prevail here. I appreciate that sentiment. I also appreciate that if you're going to eat cold pizza and drink warm Pepsi, I want to do it with my colleagues at 3 a.m. in some exactly. weary-eyed. Right? That's the way you do that. You don't do it at home alone with your cat. That's just that's not cool, uh, Lauren. Agreed. Malachi, it's so good having you on to kick off 2022 on Behind the Headlines. Thank you again for joining. Uh, Yeah, here's to a great year. Go democracy. I'm not sure this kicks off 2022 on a positive note. That said, huge thanks to Malachi Barrett and Lauren Gibbons for joining us once again. And as always, if you like what we're doing, like, comment, and share wherever you get your podcasts. He is John Heiner. I am Eric Halkren. And this is Behind the Headlines.